This talk is about wisdom. About seven years ago, in the month of June, I went to England to do a retreat for a month. And I was used to New England summers, which are usually hot or at least warm. And so I packed accordingly. I brought clothes for hot weather or warm weather. And I didn't pack any clothes for cold weather. And I can see those of you who have been in England are already smiling. (laughs) It rained almost every day of the retreat, and it was freezing cold every single day. And one day in the middle of the retreat, one of the teachers was talking about a kind of meditation, a concentration practice, where the yogi develops a lot of heat in the body. (laughs) And then this teacher started to say that this wasn't the kind of practice we were doing. We were doing the kind of practice that developed wisdom. And so I thought about it several times during that month and thought, I, I almost think that I'd rather be doing this other practice because it seems so much more practical in this situation. And I thought I just hadn't chosen the right practice. It was a short-term perspective. Why choose the path leading to wisdom? There are two passages from the Dhammapada, the very beginning, two stanzas. First, mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. If with an impure mind a person speaks or acts, suffering follows him like the wheel that follows the foot of an ox. Second verse. Mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. If with a pure mind a person speaks or acts, happiness follows her like never departing shadows. Our happiness and our sorrow are all mind wrought, originating within ourselves. This happiness is something that all beings want who take birth. Happiness comes from understanding what causes suffering and what causes happiness. The most difficult of all tasks it is said, is to understand one's own mind. What is it that brings about 
this pure mind that leads to happiness or this impure mind that leads to suffering. When babies are born, there is crying and smiling, laughing, they are wet, hungry, thirsty, warm, tired, there's nursing and sleeping and waking. And up until the age of about six months old, if I rolled a ball in front of a baby, and then if I take the ball away, from the baby's perspective, the ball is gone. If mommy leaves the room, mommy's gone. There's no sense that there's any kind of future. That moment is total. Because each moment is so total, it's a very intense world that the baby lives in. There's very little sense or no sense of past and future. And there's no way to reason about the ball or mommy with the baby. An infant doesn't begin with a strong sense of boundaries. Yet eventually the baby starts to learn to separate objects and to distinguish objects. And eventually learns about time about past and future. They begin to learn that this is a bell, or this is a Sharon, or this is a Stephen, or a Carol. This is a Buddha. They start to learn this happened yesterday, this happens this morning. They learn more and more boundaries, which is part of the development of becoming a human being. They learn a way of seeing the world so that they can begin to function in the world of human beings. And this view of the world, of rug, of table, of chair, creates a very important safety and security for the child so that she or he can begin to explore life as fully as possible from that safety. And then you come on a retreat and you hear this person up front saying, this word, bell, It's just a concept. After being conditioned and taught that it's just a bell. 
we ask you to please look more closely at your direct experience of the bell. To go beyond your conditioned sense of me and bell, of boundaries. And I've seen some yogis become very upset by this, even very angry. It's like some sort of betrayal has happened to them. That here they've been taught and conditioned that this is a rug, this is hair, this is a man, this is a woman, this is a light bulb. And now someone's telling them that this way of perceiving is just one view. Some people actually get very upset. A lot of people do. What happens is that most people become imprisoned by these learned and conditioned sense of boundaries. The world of form becomes so solid and so real that there's an increasing sense of separation and alienation and suffering. There isn't anything else but these boundaries after a while. And then there's no development beyond this important stage of a child of learning about the world, of becoming secure enough to, to explore the world. There's no freedom in the mind to be able to explore beyond one level of perception. The mind, though, is vast and unfathomable. And the tragedy, our tragedy of human beings, is that we become trapped in this sense of duality of I or me and you. And there's so much suffering in this prison as a result. Sri Nazargadatta says, to know that you are a prisoner of your mind, that you live in an imaginary world of your creation is the dawn of wisdom. To want nothing of it, to be ready to abandon it entirely is earnestness. Only such earnestness, born out of true despair, will make you trust me. The dawn of wisdom is acknowledging that one has become a prisoner of one's own mind. How does one become free of this prison? What is it that causes this sense of I, this sense of separation and suffering? 
Remember the infant's mind, having that totality of being present. In a sense, this is having a beginner's mind, very open, very, very sensitive, but not accompanied by mindfulness. There's no sense of wisdom. There's a growing, developing sense of identification. So there's a lot of sensitivity and openness and a lot of identification. As you've heard already, with each moment of contact with an object, with consciousness, there's a simultaneous pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling. If we're not mindful of these pleasant and unpleasant or neutral feelings, then there's an identification with the pleasant, and we want more, and desire arises. Or there's an identification with the unpleasant, and we push away the pain, and there's a potential for hatred or aversion to arise. When the mind is colored by this wanting or not wanting or delusion, there's suffering. We constantly defend or protect this phony territory that we call I. There's this holding or pushing away of objects over and over, and there's no peace. One can go into this more and more deeply to look more closely. And I'd like you to imagine that you go to a movie theater and you sit in a seat and you look up at the screen and the movie begins. And the movie looks very real. The people look like real people. It looks like very solid eyes, egos, animals. And then imagine turning around and looking behind you. It's a small movie theater. (laughs) And you look up and you see the movie projector and the bright light. And then you get up and you look at the actual film. Stop the movie projector and look at the film. And if you hold up the film, you'll see that there's a frame and another frame and another frame. There's one picture, one solid picture, and then another solid picture, a stop, another solid picture, and a stop. And you start to see that the movie 
isn't what you thought it was. It's not a solid, moving, real show. Each frame of the movie is just one picture being projected in a very quick, rapid way. There's one picture and then another picture and another picture and another picture, frame, frame, frame. And that's how our consciousness is. There's one frame and then it's gone. Another frame and then it's gone. There's a birth and a death, another birth and a death of consciousness, moment by moment, frame by frame. So there's seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, tasting consciousness, smelling consciousness, touching consciousness, and thinking consciousness. And this happens frame by frame, moment by moment. And because this process is happening so quickly, just like the film at the movie theater, the process appears to us to be very real. Can you imagine watching the movie at a slower speed? This is what we do when we come on retreat. We slow down and become silent so we can see more and more of the frames. And if we do that, we can start breaking through the imaginary prison. We start to see that it's because of our perception that we have this sense of solidity and permanence and reality. Because we're perceiving from one speed, one conditioned view. When we start looking more closely and slowly, we see that what we thought was solid and real, an arm, a chair, a bell, isn't so solid, it's not so permanent. For most people, happiness is associated with feelings of pleasure. It's almost impossible to think of happiness disassociated from the feeling of pleasure. This kind of happiness from sensual pleasures is conditioned by three factors. The first factor is the base. The second factor is the object. And the third factor is consciousness. This process can be compared to the striking of a match on a box to produce a flame. So, the first, the base, is the box. This is the receptor. 
Second is the object, the match, which is called the striker. And the third is ignition, the flame or consciousness. And it happens simultaneously. Consciousness. Ignition. <laughs> and then it's gone. <laughs> there, are the, there have to be the, these three component parts for ignition to occur, for the flame to occur. I'd like you to close your eyes and listen to the sound of my voice now. So to explore these three component parts, the first part is the ear door. That's the base or the receptor, like the box of the matchbox. The second is the object or the striker, which is the sound of the voice. And the third part is ignition or hearing consciousness. And this is simultaneous. One moment of contact, then it's gone. Another and it's gone. There's no solid eye behind the sound. No solid hearer. No solid person being heard. Just hearing. One frame. At the moment of contact between the striker, the sound of the voice, and the receptor, the ear door, there is ignition, hearing consciousness. Okay, the receptor or the sensitivity of the ear is a natural phenomena. It is the sensitive material basis for the reception of the sound, the object. This is egoless and liable to change. Most people would think that there's a person hearing the sound. Most people don't realize that it's a process. The striker, the sound, and the ignition, the hearing consciousness, are also egoless and liable to change. When there is mindfulness present of hearing, the mind will be able to pick up any of these three parts, receptor, striker, or ignition, which happens to be the most predominant at that particular moment. It's very spontaneous. It's a spontaneous 
event, all three happen together. But mostly we will pick up one part of the process in any particular moment. If one doesn't see the egolessness quality, the egoless quality of it, if one doesn't see that it's impersonal, this natural phenomena, then we are overcome by ignorance. This ignorance is the cause of craving. It's the cause for craving any of the three parts of this process. So if the sound is pleasant, we may crave to hear, we may cling to the ear, or we will desire more hearing. We desire the heard. Or if we have aversion to sounds that we don't like, it is because it's unpleasant and we haven't been mindful of it. It's very quick. It's very rapid. When the craving increases, it turns to clinging and it becomes, I am hearing. I am experiencing the sound. And this is when we create the sense of duality, of separation. I want the sound, I don't want the sound. Me, me, me. If we're mindful of this process, it helps us to begin to have the wisdom to see that it's just a process. Without mindfulness present, we leave ourselves open to clinging and aversion and ignorance. We leave ourselves open to the sense of alienation and separation, I and the sound, and suffering results. At this point, I would like to ask for some help to pass out these little round, brown or black objects. (laughs) And you can take two or three. There's probably more than that, but one is plenty two or three if any pleasant sensations start occurring. (laughs) And oh, please don't do anything with them. Just put them on the Zabotan for now. We beg you. (laughs) We beg you not to do anything with the raisins. What? Um, Yeah. They'll come back. 
to remind you that what we call I, this body and mind, consists of the six sense doors and the consciousness that results from those three factors of receptor, striker, and ignition. So there's seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, and thinking. And we can explore all six of those through this one object. So I'd like us to start with seeing. So if you could just take one raisin and hold it in your hand, but just using the sense door mostly of seeing. And bring your attention to your actual eye door, the receptor, the eye base. And see if you can soften and relax with your attention right at the eye door. And often our attention will jump out toward an object and see if you can see this process of, of how the attention will jump out toward, will move toward the object. And in that way, there'll be this sense of I and the object just by that movement. Just explore. There's the I base, which is the receptor. There's this round object, which is the striker, and then there's ignition or seeing consciousness. And it's amazing how quickly, think of how many moments have gone by already since you placed this object in your hand. How does this raisin seem separate from you, from seeing consciousness? Where does this round object begin and you begin? And then with the same softness of attention, with mostly with your attention in the eyes and noticing the movement, if there's any movement, Begin to notice the color and the shape. How does it appear to be separate from the color and shape of the hand?
just seeing moment by moment, frame by frame. And then there's thinking consciousness. The mind element is the receptor. The mind object is the striker, which is a thought. And then the mind consciousness is thinking, which is ignition, thinking consciousness. How does this happen? I see a raisin. The receptor is the mind base. The striker is the thought, I see a raisin. And then there's thinking consciousness. Not needing to judge the process, not needing to get upset if there's an identification or attachment or aversion, just to be mindful of it, frame by frame. Do you believe the thought, this is a raisin? Do you believe it? (laughs) 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 And please don't eat it, the raisin, yet. Just just (laughs) 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 if you can practice (laughs) it. Any <laughs> I want to eat the raisin. Let's just keep treating that as a thought <laughs> that we don't believe. <laughs> so there's seeing consciousness and thinking consciousness, touching consciousness. Is it soft or hard, smooth or rough, hot or cold? All those wonderful descriptions that you've been (laughs) labeling (laughs) over the days. Just noticing whatever sensations you feel with the contact of the hand and the object. So again, if we look at it in terms of these three parts, the receptor would be the body base. And the striker would be softness or hardness, would be earth element. That would be the striker. If it's hot or cool, it would be fire element. If there's little lumps of pressure, it would be water element. Just exploring. Ignition would be the moment of touching consciousness. And again, that happens simultaneously. 
and examining again how this sense of raisin and me happens over and over again. So there's seeing, thinking, touching, (laughs) smelling. (laughs) We're getting closer. (laughs) It's a great movie. (laughs) So there's the nose base, the receptor. I have absolutely no sense of smell, so I have no idea what this striker is. (laughs) Maybe somebody can tell me. (laughs) And then there's smelling consciousness, ignition. Again, most people will think that there's some I there, some person smelling. It's very important. This is the most important. If you can see how our perception is coloring that sense of duality. We've already explored hearing with the sound of my voice, so we're getting very close (laughs) to tasting. And I wanted you to bring the raisin back to the center of the palm of your hand. Return to seeing the softness of the eyes, the attention of being soft. And then very slowly bring your other hand over to touch the raisin. And almost frame by frame, slowly lift the raisin to the lips, but not to bring it inside the lips, just touching the lips. Is the raisin eye yet? This is the moment that often there's a real sense of I. (laughs) Because it seems like they become one (laughs) at this point. Why does the raisin seem more like I now? And then bringing it inside the mouth and then Just slowly sucking it, not chewing. (laughs) I'm not intending to torture anybody. And again, noticing tasting without the chewing. Is it sour, sweet, rough, hard, sticky? Sour, bitter. Most important, 
Is it neutral or unpleasant or pleasant? And it's not that we control it, it's just to become aware of the process. becomes very quiet in the room, (laughs) tasting consciousness. There's the tongue, the receptor, the striker, the sensations of tasting, sweet, and tasting consciousness. You're welcome to do that one more time, (laughs) especially if it was a pleasant sensation. (laughs) If we're not mindful at the moment of ignition, in this case of tasting consciousness, If there's a pleasant feeling, which we have no control over, then there'll be a movement toward wanting more. And that's when the I becomes very solid. And say I passed around a ball of miso. If you can imagine a ball of miso or a lemon or some object that you know for you is more unpleasant, if there wasn't mindfulness present, there'd be a feeling of not wanting more, of pushing away the unpleasant. And then aversion will arise if we're not aware of the unpleasantness. If there's no mindfulness, it veils the truth of things. We don't see clearly. And because we're not seeing clearly, there's no space for wisdom to arise. I, or me, is produced moment by moment. You've heard of alcoholism. There's egoholism. And we all suffer from egoholism. It's a kind of disease of being tormented by greed, hatred, and delusion. And this being an egoholic is being tied to objects. It's being a prisoner of objects. 
not seeing clearly that it's the pleasantness and the unpleasantness that we get tied to. This person named Srinasargadatta, he defined a saint as someone who could flow with life. No resist, no resisting. And if you think of life as a stream, if you think of a stream of water as consciousness moment by moment, when we hold on or when we push away, we're not flowing with the water anymore. And there's suffering, there's resisting. And the saint is someone who's given up, resisting, who just flows with life, whether it's unpleasant or pleasant or neutral, whether there's a waterfall or a swamp, or just a stream, a pleasant stream. It's the ability to flow with life just as it is, That's wisdom. When there's just tasting, or just seeing, or just smelling, or whatever, there's no separation. There's no duality. And you know the pain when you feel, I want that, or I don't want that, it's so painful. And it becomes very subtle. Clinging is clinging, no matter what level we cling on. We can cling to the most subtle sensations. Very wonderful meditative states we can cling to, but it's still suffering. And the quieter you become, the more painful that this wanting and not wanting actually feels. It's very powerful to become aware of it, frame by frame, closer and closer. The Buddha said that a thought is just a thought. A feeling is just a feeling. A sensation is just a sensation. And it's an awesome task to have the quality of attention, to have the clarity of mind, to be with life like that. And if we can do this once, and then again, if the mindfulness comes again and again, a momentum builds up, and we start not being tied to the objects of consciousness that are appearing. We're no longer a prisoner of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feelings. And then we're not a prisoner of samsara anymore. The less we're tied to objects, 
the deeper the contentment. And this contentment can get so vast and so deep because one's not a prisoner anymore. This man named Srinasargadatta, he says, Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. So this talk is more about wisdom tells me I'm nothing. It's about detachment. Wisdom is knowing that nothing is worth being attached to because it's just this process. And it leads to incredible contentment the more one can actually perceive in that way. When I was doing a three-month course with Upandita here several years ago, seems like a long time ago, during his evening discourses, and always, without fail, at the end, he would always talk about Nibbana and reaching Nibbana. And I used to get so out of balance when I would hear it. I would just... You know those punching bags that kids play with? uh, They're full of air, and you can just punch them, and they come back. When he would talk about nibbana, I would just (laughs) go over, and for an hour or two or more, I would just be so blown blown off center. And I knew that his intention (laughs) wasn't at all uh, aiming toward this. And I finally went to him for an interview and told him how difficult it was for me when he said this. And he looked so shocked. It was, it was like the furthest thing from his mind that, that saying that could actually create suffering in the mind. <laughs> and then I explained that for me, it brought up a lot of striving, and that when I heard it, it, it brought more pain than um, happiness. And he just smiled, because I don't think he was so used to having a student that had that reaction. And he, he said two things. The first thing he said with a big smile <laughs> was, you should never have a goal when you're practicing. And the second thing he said was, each moment of mindfulness is a moment of nibbana. Big smile. When you practice mindfulness of what is happening, moment by moment at the six sense doors. Any moment of mindfulness is a moment of peace. 
It means that the mind is clean and the mind is pure and happiness results. Just one moment of that happiness results. If there's no mindfulness, suffering results. So if the mind becomes truly guarded with mindfulness present, the mind becomes pliable and soft and wide and expansive. It's dangerous to be an egoholic because we're most dangerous to ourselves. It's dangerous to be under the influence of greed, hatred, and delusion. Wisdom is as expansive and grounded as Mother Earth. It brings much happiness. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.